energy up, 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 up. <laughs> John, up, we, up no, up, we're, we've got up, energy up, for up, days. Up, 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 up. It's a beautiful day here in Southern California. It stopped raining. It's finally, or at least for now. We're still yeah. in drought conditions, though. I don't know if people knew that. I didn't know that, actually. Yes. According to San Diego, we are in drought conditions because we're only at 54% of what our normal water table should be at. Okay. What or is snowpack, water table sorry. Again? Snowpack. <laughs> I'm big on the meteorology, guys. Okay. I don't know if you knew this. But there's no snow. Ca- ah, whatever. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to hear about. And not particularly on the East Coast. Like, we had three days of rain. Whoa. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> They, and John, they didn't even send in the National Guard. <laughs> NPR did do a headline where it's like, weather weather blastering both coasts currently. I'm like, mm, one of these <laughs> things is not like the other. <laughs> I don't know, John. They were most. They were both uh, moist. <laughs> in their don't own use way. that word. Don't use that word. All right. But just goes to show, coastal elite Hollywood just mm-hmm. loves to talk about the coasts, not about middle America, where yeah. the real oh, people live. It's as if the media is writing about what they experience in large cities on the coast. Mm-hmm. Greg, what are you that's, saying? That's my excuse for the elitist media. Oh, okay. That's, I'll give them that one, yeah. What, what are you saying? What are you saying? I'm saying that, hey, if you want the media to represent you, you know, make uh, East Bumblefunk, Texas more <laughs> enticing, and then more media members will come, and then they'll see what a nice town it is. <laughs> they already did that. It was called Fixer Upper. That was phase one. <laughs> oh, man. Let's talk about Fixer Upper. Ugh. Well, I was going to save that for Spotlight, but okay. <laughs> All right, but we're having fun now. <laughs> it's it's already over, Greg. The show's done. It's oh, gone. It, oh, it is? I didn't yeah, see a I big... So. There, there wasn't a big celebration finale at uh, Vulture Magazine or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I thought I would have seen something on all the websites I frequent. I, th- I thought I would have seen something. No, I don't. I don't think so. Again, because I don't think this was planned to be kind of a finale. So I think it was just kind of a standard. Uh, we fixed up a house for a friend. <laughs> you know, kind of. Oh thing. come! On. No, they've done navel gazing episodes before. <laughs> eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Again, it's. It, I don't. I don't think it's worthy of that kind of attention, Greg. Come on. Are you, John, I know that disappoints you. John, are you kidding me? Two, two white guys in Southern California are talking about it. I think it has <laughs> some cultural impact. Yes, once it reaches our table, who boy, you know the cultural impact is there, okay? Yeah, absolutely. We don't look at obscure things at all. We only no. look at the big things. Exactly. I don't watch Rick and Morty, but I have seen episodes of Fixer Upper. <laughs> so, which, which, yeah, which one's making a bigger cultural impact? You tell me. <laughs> Welcome to Aspiring Snobs, but we have the finger on the pulse yes. of America and American tastes. Uh, and with a little with little jokes to the side. You know. Yes. Not too many, of course. No. And not today. Definitely not today. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah, the premise of the show is that, John, you and I, one of us will see a classic or uh, a movie that's perceived as required viewing mm-hmm. uh, to be a cinephile. And so I hope people... This is the first time we've seen this film, and I hope people can understand our aversion to it, um, <laughs> not seeing this film until now. Yeah, uh, it's not a good time at the movies, let's just call it what it is. <laughs> and I, I, I found a fun little anecdote for it. Um, the director an antidote? Of a fil- an anecdote. Anticdote? Anticdote. Like a story. Anecdote is what it's called. That's what I said, anecdote. You didn't, you didn't say that. But I yeah, said anecdote. Anecdote. <laughs> That's still not right. <laughs> that is what it is, anecdote. <laughs> no, not anecdote. <laughs> you, you got me screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But yes, this week we finally sat down and watched for three hours Steven Spielberg's magnum opus, Schindler's List. you have a fun little anecdote to go along with that <laughs> yes i do so someone asked him early on in the uh, production of this film is like why don't you just take the money that you would use to make the movie and just donate it to the show foundation and save everyone a lot of grief 
And uh, I, uh, and that just kind of made Steven Spielberg just want to double down more and actually make this movie, which I understand the impetus. Obviously, this is a story that needs to be told, but oh boy, is it not fun to watch. <laughs> no, and well, interesting, you said it's a story that needs to be told, and going back, you mentioned Shoah. Mm-hmm. Shoah, for those that don't know, is a nine-hour documentary uh, with interviews from uh, Holocaust survivors, perpetrators, and bystanders. Mm-hmm. Bystanders, excuse me. <laughs> So in terms of like necessary viewing, I was wondering what a fictionalized story, um, because Oscar Schindler was obviously a real man, but this is somewhat of a fictionalized um, interpretation of it, Mm -hmm. of his courageous acts, like what what that would lend to the Holocaust. And so I was wondering, like, would it do it, would it do it a justice or would it do it a disservice? And so that was that was my um, big worry going in. And also the other one, too, is we discussed this um, when we watched Saving Private Ryan. Mm hmm. Steven Spielberg is obviously one of the most tremendously talented filmmakers ever mm-hmm. and can obviously convey the gravity of whether it be war or a genocide like this. However, there's also his instinct to be an entertainer of course. and please crowds <laughs> and inspire. And so like, I'd, I'd, I was worried to see that kind of contrast, to see those two instincts uh, um, in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and I was actually pretty thankful that they don't really come to the fore. Instead, it is just uh, like effective filmmaking. Um, I'm going to disagree with you a bit on that one. Okay. Because I do feel like if I had to sum it up in my pithy yet succinct manner, I would say this is Showa meets Frank Capra. This uh, is Because sh- th- there is, a, it is a bit histrionic. It is very old fashioned in the filmmaking techniques. And I do think it does try to kind of achieve this kind of old fashioned rousing kind of like, rah, rah, we did it. Like, look at the difference we made. Uh, granted, you know, obviously the last scene doesn't really pan that out. He obviously uh, famously cries and is like, I could have saved more, but mm-hmm. I, it, I don't know. There's something about this film that is very kind of old-fashioned, very old Hollywood. Like those opening scenes, I was like, were we transported to Casablanca? What's going on? Where's Rick? Where's Sam? <laughs> I thought that lended to the story in which he's trying to tell. Mm. Uh, first, there was the reality. I guess I think we open on the Jews being a, a, po- a pogrom of... Um, Polish Jews being pushed into a ghetto in Krakow. Mm-hmm. And that shot in handheld, and again, it's very jarring, lots of quick cuts. But then we, we transition to our introduction of Oscar Schindler, and yeah, that's where you th- it looks like Casablanca, the production mm-hmm. design. Uh, camera's now on a tripod, beautifully lit by Janusz, Janusz Kaminski, who's mm-hmm. now uh, Steven Spielberg's frequent collaborator. This was their first collaboration together. Mm-hmm. And so I, I understood the need to show that contrast between the suffering that the Jews are going through at this point uh, conveyed through handheld camera work and, and harsh natural lighting and the glamorous world in which this uh, bon vivant Oscar Schindler is living, um, trying to get contracts and bribing Nazi officials and, and yeah. basically profiting off the war. And again, the reason why I use Casablanca as a reference point is because I do think that was a major inspiration for this quote-unquote character this idea of this man who kind of just uses war as a, he's kind of a ne'er-do-well, he's a bit of a scoundrel who kind of just uses war for his own profits, his own ends, until he kind of realizes that, you know, people he loves, people he cares about have skin in the game, and he kind of changes his tune. And that, I thought, was also pretty natural. I mean, I, I want to hear what you think, but I was afraid that, yes, he, he starts out, he's very self-centered. Mm-hmm. He obviously gives no care to the plight. He's a German who's a part of the Nazi party. He obviously gives... He, could care less about the plight of the Jews in Krakow at this point. Mm-hmm. However, like, and I thought, like, oh, he would see some atrocity and would ramp up, like, the way you do, what the way you expect a movie to. Yeah. But somehow it felt, and I give credit to not only the script by Steven Zalian, but also the performance by Liam Neeson, mm-hmm. in that it, it doesn't quite hit those beats or those beats. It, it, it didn't quite, you know, play to expectations. Instead, there are, like, little scenes like uh the one with um Eamon Golf who we'll we'll talk to <laughs> who we'll talk who we'll, who we'll speak to in a second yeah Ugh. um also a real figure we'll see how much was embellished there or whatever but mm-hmm. like the the scene between the two of them and and you know he's at this point he is he is trying to look after um his Jewish workforce again because he still considers them a workforce yeah however you still see signs of um more humanity creeping in exactly and, and how he will he will stick his neck out for the people because it is right and just exactly and you, you, that opening scene again sets up the important point which is you know it's about the atrocities he does witness and the fact that he's kind of at the beginning very insulated away from kind of all of it and we get an early scene where he has this worker this very old worker who only has one arm 
and uh he's obviously the worker comes to oscar schindler he literally like bangs on his office door every day like wanting to get the opportunity to thank him and oscar you know gives him like credence but again he's very upset that you know this guy's even working for him period and then the guy gets killed by nazi uh, soldiers for basically no reason for not working hard enough because he can't because he's old. well not working yeah well not yeah not working hard enough they justify it in saying well they don't they don't even view jews as humans that's true yeah. and now they see this here's this crippled old man and so they they see him as even more useless than they would than they would in in a regular dehumanizing fashion. Well, I mean, and that's kind of the interesting thing about this movie is that it's not just about the dehumanizing aspects of you know racism and anti-Semitism, also about capitalism. Because the <laughs> that's way, true. I yeah, it's a very kind of anti-capitalist message. Really? Because I, the way the way he saves these Jews, and again, what they're emphasizing the fact that they're essential workers, they're putting forth their value to the economy therefore they are worth having around like it's this weird like and again he obviously oscar schindler didn't believe this eventually he comes around to like all human lives have worth but the way he has to justify it to his fellow nazis is the fact that look they can contribute to the war effort that's why their lives have value yes and obviously um at the end he gives up his he amasses a personal wealth based mm-hmm. on the exploitation of jewish workers yeah but then he gives it all away to save um a thousand from this from this camp outside of krakow exactly and but and there is this one scene that i think kind of went a little too over the top is when he's talking to his uh, wife i don't know if they were married yet at this point i got a little confused on the whole wife situation but um, yeah that's that's one misstep that that like you said felt like kind of classic hollywood and felt somewhat out of place but he has this kind of brief monologue with his wife where he talks about like you know like i came from nothing my father was poor but now look at Mm -hmm. me i have all this money and that's what people will remember me for they'll remember me for all the wealth (laughs) i amassed (laughs) i think think he wants all right taking taking too fine a point on it you know yeah (laughs) taking that hammer well i i will say i thought it I thought maybe we're celebrating Oscar Schindler and particularly that um, that he's driven by capital mm-hmm. because Steven Spielberg himself, <laughs> uh, whether he's admitted this himself, uh, but I, I, I'm sure he has, he, he is also motivated by money. Steven Excuse Spielberg, me? He, Excuse me. Hey, the director incredible of Ready Player talent. One, you <laughs> accuse him of being only interested in the money. Not solely interested in money. However, it's you. a clear motivator for him. How dare you? How I mean, dare you? Steven Spielberg is a capitalist, so I, I didn't take it as much as the uh, Frank Capra like movies like It's a Wonderful Life. Obviously, extol the virtues of sharing and um, mm-hmm. socialism. Yeah. You could say <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get that from from this movie as much. So I didn't see it as like a like an anti-capitalist creed or anything like that. But no, and more of right. like kind of personally giving of yourself, mm-hmm. like the personal sacrifice and the personal toll and courage that it took to uh, to make what's right. Yeah, and again, like this whole argument that Oscar Schindler continuously makes for the lives of his workers is again that they are essential. You could mm-hmm. argue that that's just pure shrewdness, like this idea that it's like again, regardless of how um, uh, regardless of how ethical you think you are or how uh, morally high grounded you think you are, like money still makes the world go round. And you're right, maybe Steven Spielberg feels the exact same way, because at the end of the day, how do you get funding for a movie? Well, it's got to be a return on investment. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, he made Jurassic Park before this, so. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was part of a two-picture deal with Universal Studios. He would make Jurassic Park and then this. Mm-hmm. And he famously forewent his, his entire salary and every residual that he would get on this movie and sent it straight to the Shoah Foundation, for mm-hmm. which supports uh, memorials and basic education about the holocaust mm-hmm. so you know maybe maybe in this instance he he pushed those capitalist instincts of his aside and <laughs> maybe maybe it is again i that's that wasn't my interpretation it was more like the more like the the personal cost and courage mm-hmm. of standing up in the face of this kind of oppression and maybe that oppression is uh based on capitalism who knows <laughs> yeah and again like there is kind of a christ-like quality to him where at the end when the war is over he kind of gives this big rousing speech, and that was the most Frank Capra-esque moment to me, when he's like standing up, he's like spotlit on the factory yeah. floor, like <laughs> presenting himself to everybody and explaining yeah. is like, tomorrow you're all free. I'll be on the run. I'll be, you know, hiding because again, I'm a member of the Nazi Party. I have to flee. And it's kind of like again this, you know, Christ-like moment where he has to sacrifice. He sacrificed his livelihood 
for the sake of all these people. I, I wouldn't go that far, John. Especially, I, mm, in, especially right. in a Jewish movie from a <laughs> okay. Jewish director. Oh, gosh, I didn't even think of that. All right, fine. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think a celebration of... Messianic uh, of, of one particular... Messianic yeah. figure. Okay, gosh. <laughs> Here, do you know who that man is? I don't know. I do want to go back to the violence in this movie. Oh boy, so, do we? Yeah. <laughs> well, you said I. I don't want to give people the wrong impression. You're kind of hung up on the on the kind of classic Hollywood tone that mm-hmm. some of the scenes strike. I mean, but I think where the movie really makes its biggest impact is in the depiction of not only the liquidation of Krakow, but also other horrible atrocities that took place in this period of time. Yeah, and so. That's maybe something I wanted a little bit more. Not obviously not <laughs> depictions of violence, but what I wanted was it's it's called Schindler's List, and yes, it is a biographical film about Oscar Schindler. But there are moments reserved for showing the whole tapestry of this experience, particularly in the character played by uh, Ben Kingsley. Mm-hmm. Um, they there are little snippets about the other families who are who were survivors, who are uh, as they were called, like Schindler's Jews, who um, were thankfully saved um, by mm-hmm. his machinations. So yeah. I, and you're I right. Wish... I don't think the movie kind of goes into their personal lives a little in, enough, honestly. Because again, like, I really had a hard time remembering their names. Like, there's the moment where he's like writing out the list, and it shows that he remembers each and every one of their names. But I'm like, who is he talking about? <laughs> like, I couldn't picture them. And I think it's because, again, the idea is that this is trying to build a rich tapestry, and personally for me there wasn't enough time to get really invested in all of them besides the normal investment of hey i don't think jews should be killed okay (laughs) well i think that's because you know in the in the realistic depiction of these scenes Mm -hmm. they're not characterized as you would in a movie like in our introduction to oscar schindler we know what his character is exactly he's a ladies man he's a he's a louse (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) he can hold his liquor (laughs) he's a gadfly he's a man about town exactly so we we establish him the way you would a regular movie character however for the the character of stern or pfeiffer or miss pfeifferberg or something like that they don't Mm -hmm. they don't exude personality the way a movie character would well no so that that i appreciated yeah when they're introduced they're getting you know basically relocated and basically, they're just victims the whole time. So it's really, you don't get a lot of time to kind of characterize them, unfortunately. They're kind of like, I don't want to say props, because that makes it seem like, you know, they're not. Like, they're humanized. Or exactly. Dehumanized, dehumanized. As, as much as they were as, as by the Nazis. But again, like, that's what happens to them. So it's like, naturally, the movie has to express that. So how do you, like, <laughs> and then also reveal, like, I miss biking. Like, you know, you, you don't get those moments. <laughs> no. Uh, there, there is one. Um, they're huddled around a uh, a burning trash bin, mm-hmm. and I think they t- they talk about uh, trying to find hope in this uh, des- uh, this desperate situation. Mm-hmm. Like that scene, I admired, and then unfortunately, sadly, it's followed by a, a liquidation of the, the entire city and the moving into a work camp. Yeah, and again, those, that's some of the most powerful filmmaking as well. And mm-hmm. And I do wish. Unfortunately, there are some embellishments to it that I wish that I wish would that I wish wouldn't distract from the horrors of those scenes. Yeah, uh, I'm speaking in particular um, Oscar Schindler, and I'm presuming his girlfriend. I don't I don't believe it's his wife. <laughs> they are... Well, I think okay. So I think the reason why they didn't give too much credence to the wife is because obviously Oscar Schindler's marriage failed soon after the war, and yeah. again they have a little title card for that. So obviously they don't want to like 
again, it's not like a beautiful mind where it's like, it's all about this romance. Oh, they divorced yeah. two years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't on the firm footing to begin with. <laughs> I guess that's also true. Yeah, they're living, they're living separated. Um, mm. But in any event, he, he's watching this from a hilltop, literally on horseback. Yeah. And it, it's like out of a Western or something like that. <laughs> Then there is another scene when the when the Nazis are raiding these poor destitute people mm-hmm. and basically forcing them out at gunpoint. Uh, one of the Nazis starts playing on a piano, a mm-hmm. jaunty tune, yeah. and it's supposed to contrast with the horrors of this of this liquidation of people. He's he's playing some kind of Bach piece while you know guns, machine guns are rattling in the background and people stop. Yeah. It's like, hey, what are you playing? You know, like they don't even care. Yeah, yeah. So. I, again, I wasn't sure if that lent to the. It's it's a dramatic device that you mm-hmm. see in a movie. However, like what we want to see is the real, the harsh, terrible reality of this. Yeah. And so, like, I feel like those little embellishments kind of distracted from it. Exactly. It kind of goes a little too far into gratuitous. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying like, oh, I wish he humanized the Nazis more, because I'm sure there were good people on both sides. Okay. <laughs> but you know, it's not that kind of movie. It's not like, well, yeah, I think it would be distracting if there was like one Nazi guy who was either like, I'm just following orders or, you know, was clearly kind of hesitant to what he was doing. Well, John, there is that one Nazi guy. Oh, okay. Who's that? <laughs> it's a um, real person <laughs> by the name of Amon Goth. Mm-hmm. And he's played by the brilliant Ralph Fiennes, the beloved Ralph Fiennes, Gustav H. Every- of the Grand Budapest Hotel. Sure, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, uh, whatever. He who shall not be named, Voldemort, I believe it is. Voldemort, yes. Again, finger on the pulse. Greg knows yeah. all the Harry Potter characters. So that's in terms of what you're. I was worried about this introduction because he's the villain. He's the clear villain. Yeah, absolutely. In reality, as he is in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I was worried, like, about focusing all of our, our our hatred on him. Yeah. And it turns out he's actually a little bit more complicated than perhaps perhaps I give it credence. Like, I was wondering, like, was it productive to focus on his villainy? And then, as we see later, it is, because in his interactions with Oscar Schindler, as well as a, a, a Jewish maid who he somewhat enslaves. Yeah. There, there's, there's kind of more to him. There's more conflict than I, than I initially gave it credence as the, as the story goes on. I mean, it is kind of interesting. I mean, for me, because we should also say he's, he's despicable. Like, oh yes, he's an unspeakable acts of vi- Yeah, he's, there's unspeakable acts of violence that I don't, I don't even want to describe. Yeah, for me, in this movie. the key scene about him doesn't even include him, and it's the scene where Oscar is talking to his accountant played by Mm -hmm. the great Ben Kingsley. Um, We haven't even talked about him. Oh, gosh, we've got so much to talk about. Um, He's talking to Ben Kingsley about this character and basically trying to justify his actions. Uh, Goth is, like, obviously this monster who, again, Mm -hmm. will just wake up in the morning and just snipe Jews who aren't working hard enough in the camps. Like, again, he's completely deplorable. Yeah. But Oscar is kind of, like, again, justifying it to his accountant. It's like, look, war is stressful, okay? This does things to people. And it's this Im- implication that it's like, oh, if he weren't, you know, in this scenario, he would be a morally upstanding guy. And I don't know if that's, and again, like, we see the way he treats his maid. We see the way he obviously, you know, is careless to the plight of the Jews. Like, I just don't know if that's true. And I think that's kind of the point that the movie's trying to make, which is, you know, you can make that argument as like, oh, I'm just following orders. But you you kind of have to have a kind of corrupt moral center if you're willing to do that in the first place. Yeah, but I was surprised by he's conflicted because he, he's developing feelings for this Jewish, uh, this Jewish maid. Oh, the his. one he beats? Yeah, oh, I thing. <laughs> the one he controls? I, 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 the one he treats I, 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 like I'm a not, slave? I'm not condoning his behavior, John. I'm just saying. <laughs> there, there was more nuance than I interpreted. And also, and this is part of... Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's great dramatic skill. Mm-hmm. There's an interaction that Oscar Schindler has with uh, Eamon Goth, and he says, "Hey, you really want to show power? Uh, forgive people. It's more powerful to forgive people." And the following day, it looks like he's he's actually you know softening his stance. That is mm. until later. <laughs> um, a boy is cleaning the bathtub, and he forgets to lie. It seems like he he has forgiven him, uh, but uh, he shoots him later. Exactly. So yeah, I've I don't know I. That scene I felt was protect. There are great kind of I I won't I want to say twists because again this is history, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I thought that was effective in terms of 
how unrepentant he is in spite of the like again we're 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 trying to characterize this guy as a little more conflicted and expressing the banality of evil rather than the than the absolute you know zenith of evil that this character actually is <laughs> yeah you have to understand Gert is under enormous pressure you have to think of it in his situation he's got this whole place to run he's responsible for everything that goes on here all these people he's got a lot of things to worry about and he's got the war which brings out the worst in people never the good always the bad Always the bad. But in normal circumstances, he wouldn't be like this. He'd be all right. There'd just be the good aspects of him, which is <laughs> a wonderful crook. A man who loves good food, good wine, the ladies, making money. Killing. He can't enjoy it. Bajewski told me the other day somebody escaped from a work detail outside the wire. Gert lined up everybody from the missing command's barracks. He shot the man to the left of Bielski, the man to the right of him. He walked down the line shooting every other man with a pistol. Twenty-five. What do you want me to do about it? Nothing, nothing. It's just talking. There is one rug, kind of rug pulling out from under you later in the film. I couldn't, I couldn't verify its veracity. That might have been invented by the novel on which this this movie's based. Mm-hmm. That I felt uh, was a little more exploitative. That I that I didn't like. And that is uh, after Oscar Schindler creates this list to to create a new workforce in his in his home safe town of uh, Czechoslovakia. In mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. they put the men and women on two trains. The men with the train, the train with the men on it, uh, arrives safely in his hometown. The train with the women goes to Auschwitz mm-hmm. inadvertently. Yeah, and there's this terrible scene where it looks like they're going to be led into the gas chamber. They all get their um, hair cut. They all get these crew cuts. You know, they're all yeah. forcibly, and then they're all led into the showers, and they're all crying, and they're all weeping, and then you mm-hmm. start to hear the clicking of the machinations the, the lights go down yeah and then water starts coming out and it's almost like again they're almost happy about it because it's like oh thank god we live another day yeah and I, it's, it's horrifying <laughs> i again effective dramatically I, I took a step back though and i'm like again did this did this happen in reality and it, it, it felt almost kind of like exploited in a way it does it like like we're taking of... like we're taking the the terrible gravity of auschwitz and instead like using it to uh dramatize our story it it also kind of just feels a little shoehorned in because again we're kind of wrapping things up and it's kind of like yeah this is in the third act well, this is in the third act it, schindler has the list he's getting these mm-hmm. people out of here and it just kind of feels like a weird little aside and I'm sure it, it probably did happen, and that's why they felt like they needed to include it. And also, how do you do a Holocaust movie that doesn't include Auschwitz? You know, like, <laughs> it's kind I of necessary. I, yeah, well, that's the thing. I honestly think, I don't think it was necessary. I mean, people are aware of the, the horrors of Auschwitz. There's another great documentary by Alan Rene called Night and Fog. You should go see it. That's, okay. That's my little spotlight. Uh, it's about Auschwitz. Like, that, that gives whole credence to the horror of it i i didn't like how it was kind of shoehorned in and you know steven spielberg saying like i've got to make this the most dramatic highest stakes possible well i have to include a scene in auschwitz don't i mm-hmm. yeah instead of you know committing to the reality of because again i couldn't verify i'm not sure if this actually happened if there was a mistake where a train that was intended to go somewhere else wound up at auschwitz and the these poor jews actually survived yeah because again i don't I shudder to think like anybody that went into Auschwitz actually came out of it alive. Yeah. I mean, and that is the kind of the weird thing about this movie is the fact that you can make the argument that maybe it is a little too gratuitous when you don't need to go gratuitous. Six million people died. Like we already know the horrors of it. And to kind of like lay it on like layer and more layers just kind of feels a bit much. Well, no, I mean, I understand that. I was wondering like obviously the the holocaust is was horrific and there's a number of great books and documentaries and and things kind of explaining the reality of it i was wondering what this narrative fictionalized film would do to lend to that mm. and i do think and i do give a credit there is a lot that it does lend i think mm. um there's there's one particular scene it's when they're instituting the the final solution mm-hmm. and they take the kids away and some of the kids run back to the camps and hide 
Yeah, and one of them and is all of them are and one one poor kid is is left alone and he's trying to find like the last hiding spot in every place he looks like there's already kids hiding in it until he eventually has to go to the outhouse and hide in the toilet and there's already yeah. four kids in there. Yeah, and, and that that sequence is going to stick with me. Yeah, and so like little again showing the rich tapestry like it won't be it won't be the scenes with uh, Oscar Schindler and his wife but those moments like mm-hmm. even though I, I understand it's actors and. You know, it's on a set. Like, it still, it still communicated the horror of that to me. Dare we say maybe this movie would have been better without Oscar Schindler? Like, maybe, maybe <laughs> if say, he just he's, focused he's... on the victims. Maybe it would have been like a richer tapestry. That was my first note. Initially, I thought Oscar Schindler was kind of the least interesting aspect of the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I wanted, to, I wanted to focus on Stern, who's played by Ben Kingsley. Let's talk about him a little bit. Mm-hmm. I wanted the story to focus exclusively on him because he's the one who's enduring uh, first the the uh, relocation to the ghetto and then the liquidation of it and then th- surviving in the work camp and seeing you know all this horror around him mm-hmm. uh come to find out actually stern is um uh an amalgam of all these different accountants yeah so, he had several different accountants over the years but they kind of focus on just this one yeah so i can understand why they why they couldn't center the movie on on this completely not completely made up character but this fictionalized one mm-hmm. i mean i get it though because again oscar schindler is the one with the arc he yeah. starts off as a scoundrel and becomes a good person. Yes. You know, he's Han he's Solo. Also, and initially, also, he wanted uh, Harrison Ford. He's also a goy, which uh, yeah, <laughs> the audiences could identify with. Fair point, fair point. Well, we can't get out of this discussion without talking about the most impactful visual of the whole movie, the girl in the red coat. Oh, yeah. because or, So I, I, I knew this movie by reputation, and again, and maybe this is intentional, but my initial thought was, oh, the girl in the red coat ends up making it at the end. Like, the whole idea is that Oscar Schindler sees her at the beginning when he starts Mm -hmm. having his change of heart and then in the crowd as he's leaving, you know, crying, like, I could have saved more, I could have saved more. Because, And, again, that scene is powerful because someone literally gets rid of their fillings. Ooh, fillings. Let's not even talk about that. Um, (laughs) He literally, like, gives him like the last piece of silver that he has. And he's like, Mm -hmm. I could have saved two more people with this silver. Yeah. And I thought, oh, we're going to see the girl with the red coat. Nope, halfway through the movie, when we're getting a horrific scene where all these Jewish bodies are being burned on a pyre, yeah. we see the girl in the red coat in a cart. And I was like, oh, she doesn't make it. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> well, yeah, John, you got you to gotta show the, the horror and ugliness of this uh, huge atrocity. And I feel like it does that, and yeah, Oscar Schindler obviously witnesses it. First, she witness, he witnesses the, we should explain the context, the girl in the red coat is um, alone mm-hmm. while this liquidation of the Krakow ghetto is going on. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of wandering in the streets while all this chaos is going on around her. And then later he sees, I think I think it's another horrific scene, like there's ash falling on the city. Yeah, and it is you the think it's snow, these... and then they realize it's ash. Yeah. And it's because, again, they're, they're piling up these bodies and burning them. Yeah, out in this field, and yeah. Yeah, he sees he sees the the corpse of the young girl in the red coat. I mean, I think it's instructive because this is only halfway through the movie. Like uh, Oscar Schindler hasn't made that turn yet to actually want to save uh, these people from this atrocity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is it's it's really important. It's 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 harsh. It's terrible, but it's necessary. Yeah, I guess <laughs> to show. Yeah. yeah, I I just thought like the splash of color was like a sign of hope. Not like a sign of despair. <laughs> I, John, it's red. Is okay. red a hopeful color? All right. Good point. Good point. Red's not hopeful. <laughs> I just, I, I, I like, again, that's the most impactful visual of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And again, I thought she would make it at the end. I was just kind of surprised. I was taken aback. Yeah, I, it's one of those dramatics that works. It's a, it's a narrative kind of trick that I think actually lent something to the gravity of the gravity of this uh, horrible act in history. Mm-hmm. I could have gone. There are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. If I'd made more money, <laughs> I threw away so much money. <laughs> you have no idea. If I just. There will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. 
who did so much. This car. Oh good, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This pin. Two people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for At least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. For this, I could have gone one more person, and I didn't. And I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. So again, I'll I'll give it that, even though I think documentaries like Shoah could uh, are a little bit more impactful in terms of demonstrating the the horror of the Holocaust I think I mean if you have I think the there's seven a hours in God the... some of us work for a living <laughs> nine and a half John come on <laughs> nine and a half oh excuse me sorry yeah I'm essential okay at my job all right I have work to do <laughs> sure you do um, <laughs> you share with me things on the internet John I, I wonder when you have time to look at those shut out. up <laughs> But if there's one, if there's one key takeaway from this episode, the Holocaust was yeah. bad, <laughs> and Nazis were bad. Yeah. I will say that yes, it's it is three hours and a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I were averse to seeing it because well, we were obviously aware of the Holocaust and weren't exactly open to seeing its horrors again. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I do think this is this is required viewing. It is necessary. Absolutely, it's a very mm-hmm. powerful film. And again, if you're if you consider yourself a Steven Spielberg fan. Obviously, this is a magnum opus, so please mm-hmm. go seek it out. Uh, that is until Ready Player One, his real magnum <laughs> opus, comes out. <laughs> it's See, gonna, jokes. It's, it's not all. It's not all despair. It's gonna have the T Rex and King Kong <laughs> and Doctor Who and Ninja and Turtles. the DeLorean from 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 Back to the Future and I all like your DeLorean. favorite. I recognize that. <laughs> all your favorite Warner Brothers properties. Yeah. That's one of the things that bothers me is like they do these mashup things and it's all like Warner Brothers properties because they obviously don't have the rights to have the stuff that you know nerds actually hey, care about. Technically, the Jurassic, the T Rex from Jurassic Park is a Universal property. Oh, okay. <laughs> excuse me. I'm sure Disney's pissed too. Why? Because Steven Spielberg gets Ready Player One and all this intellectual property to play around in this this uh, this cacophony of intellectual property mm-hmm. and the movie that. Steven Spielberg makes for Disney is the BFG, which flopped horribly. <laughs> First of all, Disney Disney knows what it could do. They could do a massive crossover extravaganza if they really wanted to. But yeah, again, like they they hold on to it like smothering a child. They're like, no, you can't play with our toys. I wouldn't say smothering. <laughs> I'd say overbearing, maybe. But okay. not they're not kill, they're not killing X Men. I don't think. <laughs> no, X Men are going to be in Phase Four. Of the Marvel yeah. Cinematic Universe. X-Force is coming soon. Awesome. Look out. <laughs> the New Mutants. Oh, wait, that was Pushback. Is that happening soon? Yeah. Uh, I think so. Okay. I want to see Arya Stark. Isn't that like Stark a Blumhouse some... movie? I want to see It Ar- looks like a Blumhouse movie. Yeah, whatever. It, it is, and it's got <laughs> Arya Stark using mutant powers in it, but I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully <laughs> hopefully one of these days, <laughs> and a, a Game of Thrones Hey, I'm just, will... I'm just glad that they're doing something interesting with the X-Men. Okay? Because seriously, <laughs> just... Get Brian Singer out of here. We're tired of him. Okay. And seriously, why? Ew. Why were you mad? You weren't invited to his parties. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Thank goodness I was not invited to his parties. <laughs> oh, we're having fun now. Yep. Did you know Roman Plansky almost directed this movie? Listen, it was 1992. It was a different time. <laughs> I mean, Roman Plansky almost survived. Is well, almost. He did survive the Holocaust. Oh yeah, uh, and also explain, his like, wife he lived, was murdered. He lived in Krakow. He lived like literally lived the liquidation of this Krakow ghetto. And his... um, if there's anybody to direct the story, it might be him. Uh, later, he would return to it in the the movie The Pianist with Adrian Brody. And his wife was murdered by someone with a swastika carved into his head. So, uh, look, he's yes. above reproach. He can do no wrong. 
I have been living under a rock for a very long time. I have no problems with Roman. Uh, I know, yeah. <laughs> who's to, John, who's to say the girl tied up in the chair wasn't asking for it? <laughs> oh, no. Too far, Greg, too far. I know. <laughs> I look forward to my new column in the New York Times opinion section. <laughs> Greg Mantel, the next David Brooks. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, John. I'm just ex- I'm just ex- exercising my First Amendment rights to free speech. <laughs> as a white man, I think yeah, it's important as... that my views are espoused. Yeah. Speaking of views, Greg, let's espouse some more. Okay. Expouse? Expose? Expunge? I don't know. Ex- expound, I think, is expound. the word Expound, okay, for? fine. Yeah. All right, mm. whatever. I can't pronounce today, okay? It's too early. Fuck yeah. you. <laughs> so tired. <laughs> I know, it was a long movie, but, you know, hey, we're having fun now. All right, we're having we're fun. We're making terrible, terrible jokes. <laughs> About Roman hurtful, Polanski. Yep, hurtful and awful, and people have switched off already, John, so we can just continue and We have, can just say whatever we want now. <laughs> yeah. For our signature section, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie! It's time! John, I actually want to bring the tone down a little bit. Oh, great. Thanks. I know. We're up, well, now I, we're down again. This whole podcast is a roller coaster. I know. I, I apologize. But yes, I mean, if I can get serious for a moment, but I thought this was it, this was too much of a coincidence to pass up. Mm-hmm. Not a coincidence, but maybe destiny. Who knows? It was kismet. Yeah. But uh, what I want to spotlight today is an article that's currently running in Current Affairs magazine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> John, this is... Uh, uh, all right, listen, i got to promote them so that they give me my own op-ed column. Right. <laughs> okay, this is how it starts. <laughs> yeah, this is... It's really for me. Um, no, I think they do great work at Current Affairs Magazine, and the author is... Uh, their most prolific author, his name's Nathan J. Robinson. And this week, he did a profile... Well, not really a profile, but just a write-up on a man I'd never heard of. And it turns out he might be one of the greatest heroes of the 20th century. John, do you know who Hugh Thompson Jr. is? No, never heard of him. Okay. Well, I'm going to explain them to you right now. Okay. This, as we're recording right now, marks this month is the 50th anniversary of another one of the greatest tragedies in the 20th century, and that was the My Lai Massacre Mm. in Vietnam. And it was uh, basically, for a little context, uh, U.S. intelligence got that this village was filled with Viet Cong spies. Um, It was actually filled with women and children, but they were instructed to liquidate and to basically raz this uh, raz this village, um, regardless, and um, that's what these U.S. soldiers did. Mm-hmm. Um, again, uh, I believe hundreds died. However, helicopter pilot Hugh Thompson actually saw this atrocity going on, and he landed his helicopter and deterred uh, some soldiers from actually killing more people. Hmm. Why he does orders. he hate the troops? <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny you say that because the article itself. <laughs> The article itself does comment on that. Okay. I mean, Vietnam, from what I know, Vietnam was a rousing success for America. <laughs> and everyone turned out looking good after that. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, what the article, what Nathan J. Robinson points out in the article is um, another soldier who was actually one of the perpetrators of it. Mm-hmm. His name was William Cauley. He actually got commended uh, for uh, and lionized, like literally for carrying out this massacre, because he followed orders. He, they thought at the time he was he was a good steward of uh, the American the American force at this time. Mm, great, yeah. And um, he had a he had a song written about him called oh, the Battle fun. Hymn of Lieutenant Cali. Yeah, or Cali. I again, I don't care. I don't care to pronounce his name correctly. He deserves to be on the ashen heap of history. Oh. Whereas Hugh Thompson, for his moral courage in this situation. Uh, I believe should be should be properly celebrated, and so that's what I wanted to, to devote. Again, on the 50th anniversary, I just wanted to devote a little spotlight to this guy, Hugh Thompson Jr. Okay. I just so, I had again, no idea you read Current Affairs. I don't know when you started reading Current Affairs. <laughs> it's Current Affairs magazine. I don't know. I I mean, listen, John, we're all we're all tuned into the news a little bit more. That is true. now that an orange gorilla is literally you know running <laughs> running wild with the free world. <laughs> so. You know, I find myself more tuned in. Okay. And, you know, unlike you, I have some time to uh, go on the internet during work. So. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. I just I just work so hard, okay? Sure. <laughs> this capitalism is working out for me. <laughs> but, John, we, we've had enough of our vegetables. I, again, I just hope, I hope people go explore this uh, brave, courageous man. Okay. Um, so, but anyway, enough of our vegetables. John, give us some dessert. Come mm. on. What do you have for Spotlight? So the reason why we're doing this so early is because I have to go catch a matinee. 
of a high school play. Ooh, look at you. Wait, high school play? Yeah, high school play. I know. So <laughs> quality might be a, a bit up in the air. And also, I'm know, do- those, we're, those we're recording this on the I... day. We're recording this on the day of the March for Our Lives, so it'll be interesting to see if anything I, happens. Exactly, the younger generation is really impressing me. I, I welcome them replacing me <laughs> in the capitalist workforce. Workforce. I, I think they're. I think they're smart. Smart kids. This next generation. I know. Remember when? College... And maybe they'll impress you with the production value and performances. Who knows? Remember when the college students used to be the protesters? Now they're getting younger and yeah. younger. Oh, oh, <laughs> can't <laughs> keep track. Oh, <laughs> Anywho. I'm going to a high school production of one of my favorite musicals, The Music Man. Hooray for Music Man. <laughs> that's not I can't song. remember a song from Music Man. How dare you. <laughs> well, Greg, that's why it's important that I spotlight the movie version, because you can't name a single song from it. It's important that I spotlight the 1962 yeah. film adaptation, which carries over a lot of the original Broadway uh, cast. Okay. Yep. You don't want to spotlight the 2000 made-for-TV remake starring Matthew Broderick? <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> Let's just... He's, he's a national treasure, Matthew Broderick. Come on. Uh, look, he's far removed from Fer- Ferris Bueller, okay? He's no Harold Hill. Nice. Okay, let me tell you that. Okay. Uh, J- John, who is Harold Hill? Ex- explain the virtues of this movie to him, please. Uh, Greg, Professor Harold Hill's on hand, and he is, <laughs> okay. a, he is a con man who comes to the poor little city of or uh, the poor little town of River City, Iowa. Okay. And uh, basically his little scheme is that he's going to convince everyone to invest in a boys band. He's going to get everyone to pay for all these instruments, all these uniforms and all the little paraphernalia that goes with having a marching band and then skip town as soon as everyone's expecting a lesson. That's his whole scheme. Unfortunately, uh, so he's selling so he's selling them these instruments and uniforms and stuff like that. Exactly, yes, that's his. Oh, okay, he promises. Right, I was, like, I'm I was gonna... wondering where the con came in, where he just says, "Hey, let's start a let's start a big brass band." <laughs> <laughs> no, his con is that he goes from town to town selling people on, you know, I'm going to teach your boys how to play music. I'm going to keep them on the straight and narrow, and that's the other thing okay. too. He also kind of creates a moral panic for the you know townsfolk to kind of gather around. Got it. And I think that's what kind of makes the play a lot of fun is that it. It originates from the 1950s, but it takes place in, like, the early 19-teens, like, 1915. And so, like, the... Oh, maybe, like, a Roaring Twenties kind of vibe? Exactly. And so the idea of what, like, constitutes a moral panic must must have seemed quaint even by 1950s standards. Mm -hmm. Because the way he convinces the town, like, rouses the town is, like, there's a pool hall in your community? Oh, you got trouble, my friends. <laughs> like, pool is the is the gateway to sloth them, good sir, okay? <laughs> Gambling and betting, ooh, dear. But yes, it's currently uh, streaming on Filmstruck, so if you have Filmstruck, you have no excuse not to revisit. Mm. The Music Man, a 76 trombones led the counterpoint, while 110 coronets blazed away. <laughs> if I were a rich man... <laughs> oh, Greg, and, you're horrible. <laughs> What we're gonna do? Just... We're gonna do a musical month. We're just gonna do musical movies. Uh... Come on! Oh, this will be fun. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed the last episode <laughs> of me as host of the Aspiring Snobs. John can find some other schmuck to <laughs> sit through old timey musicals or whatever. Oh, but... fine. Let's just do Holocaust movies for the rest of time. Yippee! I, I'm done. That'll get the that. listeners. <laughs> we talked about Foxtrot last week too. I mean. <laughs> Greg is just a miserable, miserable person. Yeah, sitting I can, alone, I can reading see movies. I can magazine. see movies about yep. I can see movies about uh, horrible atrocities committed against Jews, and movies about horrible uh, atrocities <laughs> committed by Israelis. So, look at you, best yep. of both worlds. Mm-hmm. I will say this: Schindler's List did help me to empathize with uh, the Israeli people a little bit. Oh, really? You guys follow? Did you really yeah, need well, help with that? Well, no, no, no. I mean, I'm talking about current Israeli. Well, before you going into this movie, you're like Holocaust. What's the big deal? <laughs> no, not not about that. I'm just saying that the present moment, John. I'm talking about settlements. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about very complicated issues with which maybe the state of Israel isn't, you know, on the moral high ground. Oh, there. great. Yeah, let's bring in Israel Palestine. Great. Oh, this is going to be our best episode ever. Good I, job. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, fine. I I, w- I wanted to add some uh, some real texture to this episode, but no. <laughs> You just want to talk about the movies. <laughs> yeah. In this movie podcast. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to pivot to politics. <laughs> Guys, let's talk about Palestine. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. And you can reach out to us on with your opinions on Palestine if you go to Twitter or Facebook and like our page. <laughs> anyway, social media. Yes. Give us a like on Facebook. Mm-hmm. 
I follow on Twitter. Mm-hmm. A friend request on MySpace. Yeah. Um, a, 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 a thumbs up on Bebo. <laughs> no one even knows what Bebo is. Sure they do. It was so hot in 2002. Mm-hmm. Give us a... What, what do they call it on Friendster? What's Friendster? I, th- I think it was just ad friend. Oh. That, see, that's why they failed. They just couldn't differentiate <laughs> themselves enough. No. Mm-hmm. Pity, pity. Friends, friendstify. That's yeah. what they should have called it. You've been friendstified. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a hot on hotornot.com. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a ooh, app idea? Brilliant uh, million, billion dollar idea. Tinder for podcasts. Swipe right if you want to listen. <laughs> oh boy. It's a, a old white sweaty man. <laughs> That's what we'll be sweeping through. <laughs> yep. Swipe left. It Honestly, if you ever encounter a, a podcaster on Tinder or anything, swipe left immediately. <laughs> I don't even know what I direct myself in that. <laughs> is it swipe left or swipe right for you don't like them? I don't even know. No, it's it's left for a no go. Oh, okay. We're right for a yes please. <laughs> okay. It's like Mario, you're always going right. Right yep. means progress, guys. Come on. It's progress, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the proper way to read your your text. <laughs> okay. And, and one of those you... stupid comic books where I gotta read read left to right. What is this? Backwards land? <laughs> Greg is not a fan of manga, if that's no. what you're wondering. <laughs> um, it, I believe it's pronounced manga. Oh, excuse okay. Me, excuse me. <laughs> I'm going to my local Barnes and Noble and just sitting there for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Once you're done with that, yeah, yeah. you can go to your podcast We're service of people. choice. I'm a horrible person. I apologize to everybody. <laughs> and give us a star rating on iTunes. I really apologize. I'm sorry. What am I doing with my life? I'm just full of despair. Just kind of people down with me <laughs> give us a five-star review and help support greg because he needs it listen to the pain in his voice okay greg is greg is a sad lonely judgmental man john lift my spirits what are we watching next week <laughs> i think we're doing an r and r what yeah, i think but john uh, john what movies could we possibly be discussing uh i don't know maybe the biggest movie of all time ready player one Okay, I thought you were talking about Pacific Rim Uprising. Oh, well, that one will also be. Uh, now, ooh, now I'm afraid that we're, there's not enough counter programming in this R and R. What are you talking about? Two geeky movies for nerds. This is what Hollywood is, John. We gotta we gotta experience it for ourselves. Jeez, uh, I don't know. We gotta get transported to that magical world of the Oasis. Oh, <laughs> great. I have actually read that book, so I can oh, I can speak yeah to I know it. it'll be a great discussion point, won't it? Oh, it'll be fun. A quality book. We'll we'll contrast it with my book. <laughs> See who really deserves the bestseller list. Why why are why aren't we not talking about this every episode, Greg? Guys, Greg wrote a book. Indeed I did. Yes. It's available on Amazon right now. Yes, go buy it. Please. Uh-huh. He needs the money. He is out and of the hey, hey, I've got a few copies left over. Write to aspiring snobs at gmail.com. Hey, I want a hard copy of Greg's book. Mm-hmm. I, we will send it to you. I will send it to you. John won't do shit. <laughs> no, I did I did nothing. I designed the cover. I did my work. Anyway. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Go buy my book. (laughs) Thank you for putting up with us for an hour of your life. And until next time, keep aspiring.